My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I am your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and obviously, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And the topic today is, oof, this is a spicy one for a FOMO Sapiens, busyness and the high cost of being busy and how to manage it. And my guest to discuss this, which is something that I feel all the time, and I know many of you do as well, is Juliet Funt, who is the author of A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. Now, Juliet is a renowned keynote speaker, tough love advisor to the Fortune 500, and founder and CEO of the training firm, Juliet Fund Group. She's an evangelist for freeing the potential of companies by unburdening their talent from busy work. And she's worked with organizations such as Spotify, National Geographic, Anthem, Vans, Abbott, Costco, Nike, Pepsi, Sephora, and ESPN, among many others. Now, on this episode, we are going to talk about the cost of busyness in terms of your health and well-being, your productivity, and in fact, the real dollars and cents that it's costing you and your business. We're going to talk about how you can use space, specifically adding space into your daily routine to combat busyness. And we're going to start with your calendar on that. So Juliet has a lot of sort of very tactical tips that we're going to get into from running and organizing meetings to turning off your camera during Zoom calls and the power of doing that. And let me tell you something that is liberating. So this episode has a lot of good in it, and I hope you enjoy what she has to say. Now, for your small ask, I want to just suggest that you try this Zoom trick. So again, I'm not going to make the small ask about me this week. Just try turning off the camera during a Zoom and see how different you feel. I got to tell you, oh, you just like, remember the old days when you didn't have to do Zooms because you just talked on the phone? Well, it kind of takes you back to that place, and it is very nice. So give it a try. All right, and now onto the interview. As you know, I like to start with the same question with every guest on this show, and I made no exception for Juliet. So I started our conversation with this question. What's the most important decision that you've had to make to get to where you are today? When I was 22 years old, I was at the end part of a pretty sad and kind of broken part of my life where I was struggling and really pretty deep in an eating disorder. And there was a day where I made a decision to get help. And that first help led into being a therapeutically open person, a lifelong learner, um, a person who liked and did professional development. And I have had other family members who never made that shift. And my life has come together as a result of it. And that's the impetus for all the work is, is that life pulled together and taught me that learning and bettering yourself leads to wonderful things. And I think that, that that little moment of, yeah, I need help, that was the first pivot. Wow, appreciate that. You know, we like to go deep early on this show and uh, we, we just did it. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate you sharing that with us. You have this new book out and you talk about the plague of busyness, which 
I mean, I get you. And so I want to know, just before we get into all of this, like, why did you decide that this is what you wanted to talk about? What is what is it about you and busyness that go together? <laughs> I definitely wrote the book that I needed to read. So let's start with that. I'm a go-go, Manhattan, fast-paced, uh, tech-addicted lady that left to my own devices would be steeped and busy every day. And so the topic is constantly interesting, always solving my own problem while I'm solving other people's problems. But the impetus for the book really was 20 years of watching human beings sit in work in a state of this tolerated misery, where work is just the hardest part of their day. And individuals that moved me in that journey, people like people in the book, like Mindy, this wonderful woman who's a salesperson for a nutritional company, and she was so excited she got promoted. And then that promotion and all of its pressures became crushingly busy to the point where she began to work with a jar of peanut butter on her desk every day because lunch was just an impossibility. And we we talk about her, we call her the peanut butter manager, but she she's one. Pete is one, this really sweet man who was an EMT. And this is what's fascinating is he actually trained other EMTs in what's called stress inoculation exercises. They put them through these crazy high pressure situations to get ready for the real thing. And even this powerfully protected man with all of his preparation in his day job where he was getting 200 emails a day ended up in the ER with trouble breathing from stress. And it's everywhere. It's just everywhere before the pandemic, before work at home, before the new burnout stats. And I wanted them to know that they're not alone. And I wanted them to know that this is absolutely a solvable problem, that there is an exit strategy that is clear if you choose to take it. You're right. It's business is everywhere. And you write in the book about you were in this like small town in in Italy and this guy was like, I'm so busy. And he wasn't, I mean, he, he, I can understand if you're talking to like a, an emergency room surgeon mm. who has four kids and you know what I mean? Like, but I, I, I think we all feel busy all the time. I, I blame part of that on the fact that just like, we don't, we have our phones in our hands. So like any time we would, you know, in, in say we're like a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. we would have had all these like unstructured time. We're going to get into that. We, but we fill it now with a bunch of junk. It's like, it's like you know, instead of eating nutritionist, sort of nutritionist meals, we're, we're just snacking on the bad things all the time. And it is crazy to me. Like, do you think, what do you think is the reason why we, everybody feels busy right now? Is it tech? Is it culture? Is it all of those things? Mm-hmm. Juliet B. Shore, this wonderful uh, writer, calls it performative busyness. There's an aspect of theater to it where we're just signaling so often value and status. I think that's a big part of it. I think that there is the tech, and the tech is definitely a driver that we can talk about, but it would be foolish to only think that it's because of the tech. I, I honestly think that there's an emptiness that we cultivate with distanced families, broken up communities, lack of foundational little town sweetness that we can't really rely on that kind of sense of community. I think sometimes we're filling another need. And I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I've definitely felt that in myself, that that call to busy is a high stimulating, distracting, thin, easy hit of something similar to joy kind of stimulation. I think there's a lot of layers to it. 
Yeah, you call busyness a false god, in fact. And as I thought about that, as I was thinking about that, I remember times in my life, like now I actually, I'm, I I just got stuck in a COVID quarantine for a couple of days because I got exposed to somebody. And I was sitting at home bored and I was sort of like, wow, I'm bummed out that I've been exposed to COVID. Like, that's not good. But I'm really loving this free time. I read a book. I made mm. some soup, you know, all the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. It was delicious. And, um, and I do think that the busyness bit, which, I mean, we've all been on the other side. It's like when you're really busy, there is sort of like this thing. Well, I'm important. I matter because I have all these things to do. But the reality is like it is a false god because it means nothing at all. It is. And if we make the shift to business, busyness is costing us business. It is financially illogical. It is bad for creativity. It exhausts good people who try every morning to go to work with good intentions. And so that, you know, we live a lot in this corporate and entrepreneurial space where Every single day, people bring this little spark and they try to have an earnest contribution or to touch work of meaning. And all they do all day long is delete CCs and multitask in meetings. And it's it's not a it's not a way to feel that you have been uh, of contribution in your day. And and so that's why we get to the end of the day at six o'clock and say, "Did I do anything?" And we go home empty. And that's really what I'm on a mission to solve. FOMO. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. All right. So I'm in a meeting and I'm going through my emails. So, and I've, I've totally don't deliver in the meeting and basically like, does, is, is, is filing and deleting emails? Is that impacting the world? Of course it's not. It's completely ridiculous. So let's get into solutions. Let's start. Your book is called a minute to think. 
Tell us what is the solution to this horrible plague of busyness. So we're going to get into, I want to do a lot of tactical. We talked about that before, but we have to start with the foundational metaphor of the entire body of work, which is that of building a fire. If you build a fire, which I told you I'm not, I was not good at as a child, grew up in Manhattan, didn't know how to do it. But if you, what I learned as an adult is that ingredients matter. You want to have the right kind of dry starter, pine needles, newspaper. The wood actually matters. Soft wood catches fast and hard wood burns long. And I've learned all these things. But there's one foundational ingredient that if you skip it, that fire will never, ever ignite. And that ingredient is the space. It is the space in between the fire that the flames can't live without. And when you add that oxygenating space, you have a beautiful blaze, but the metaphor extends to us. And we also need this, this sense of the lungs being able to finally expand, not only for rest, and this is the primary misconception of my work, not only for recuperation, but for ideas ideas to go from spark to blaze, for strategy to be clear, for us to be objective about our work. So many places where we need that oxygenating space. We call it in our work white space. And the name came from back in the days of coaching executives looking at a paper calendar and noticing that the days that had lots of white, literal white spaces, those days had spectacular possibility. There was all sorts of things that could happen on those days, not so on the ones that were all filled. And the way that you access it is you just take a strategic pause and it just rushes in. And this is, this is what we want for people to have that oxygen. I love the analogy of the fire as somebody from Maine. I'm always the one who builds the fire, by the way. Like anytime I go somewhere and a fire needs to be built, it's like, oh, McGinnis will do it, um, which I'm happy to do. But I never really thought about the white space thing that you just said, this notion of the empty calendar. But I can think about the opposite, which is when I look at my calendar on a day where I'm when I'm scheduled from nine to seven in meetings. It, and it doesn't happen a lot because I can't tolerate that. I don't have the attention span for that. But, you know, we do have those days. I wake, I come into the day and it's like I'm armed for battle because I know that it's simply a process of enduring, right? And then you think about a day where there's open space and you're like, I'm going to look, you look forward to it and you have to choose how you're going to fill that space. And I think you're going to help us think through that today. You could fill it with just like, Instagram, uh, which we wouldn't call that space, but idea. let's get into the details for sure. Let's get into that. Let's start with <laughs> yeah, that meeting exactly. calendar because you, you painted a portrait that is, you said it's only occasional. You have a lot of agency in the work that you design, but a lot of people don't. And a lot of people at 7am to 7pm every day. Now we've created these horrifying new norms through COVID, through our anxiety and confusion. And now we are going to have to purposefully unwrite those norms. They're not going to just go away. So it would it work to start with meetings? Let's just dive into that. Yeah, let's let's get okay. let's get going. All right. Save me. If we were if we were wheeling in your meeting <laughs> calendar to an ER on the stretcher, right? And we're going to triage what's most important. Mm -hmm. We begin mm -hmm. with the cardinal rule, never let the colors touch. Because if the colored blocks are touching on the calendar, all sorts of amazing things are not going to happen that day. What we want to see is a stripy white calendar 
five minutes, 10, 15, in between each and every meeting. And if you like, we can also break down what happens inside those slices, but that's where we begin. And you just look at it right now, it probably looks like a paint swatch with just color, 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 color. So just as a beginning point, we start there. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing that I really think needs more talking about in the world of productivity we all love time blocking. It's the tool when we don't have meetings, we're supposed to look at our own blank calendar and say, one hour social media, one hour blogging, one hour financial prep. The problem with time blocking is that it is it kind of in real life ends up being a little rigid. You You put it on there and then the calendar is your boss and you're like that water buffalo with the nose ring going through the rice field, just whatever it says, you're just dragged along. But what if... What if you and I had an hour blocked to create a wonderful, let's say we're going to do a philanthropy project together, and our hearts really get awakened at around minute 42, and we start going into something deep, oh, but then ding, top of the hour, time for Twitter, and we're, what are we going to do, abandon that thread? So we like to talk about it as time sketching in pencil. It's a really subtle shift, but it makes a big difference to say, I'll time block, but then I'm going to keep revising, adjusting, and I'm going to have an eraser in my hand the whole day because I'm not going to cut off inspiration if it if it strikes. And so just adjusting those two things, the fact that the blocks are not so solid and the fact that there's some stripes now, now we begin to have a little oxygen. And so just to tell you what I'm hearing, you know, you're instituting pauses. You're making sure that when one thing ends, you're not simply running into the next thing, that you're creating space in between the different sort of events that you have in your day. And then you're also, when you do have free space, you're sort of, you may you may put it on the calendar an hour for this hour for that, but you recognize the fact that it should not be rigid, that if you get into an activity, you're and by the way, that actually is kind of what happens to me all the time. I do write down in my free space, like work on this particular thing. But then once you get into it, you know, like you can't write an essay in an hour. You can't, you may have the best idea later on. And so you need to be flexible. Now that sounds great for me. You solved my problems to some degree. I know there's gonna be more, but I'm thinking about somebody who's listening who says, well, you know what? That's great if you have control over your calendar. I have people that put things on my calendar all the time. I can't, you know how it is. The, those people who send those calendar invites, we yes. don't like them, <laughs> but they're constantly you know, get, in, encroaching upon your free space. So when you don't have that level of control and agency on your calendar, how can you implement some of the things we're talking about? Well, the, this I don't have agency piece is valid, but also uh, a little place, a slippery slope into avoiding what you can control. Uh, we work, there are 12 core mm -hmm. tools in the book and we, there was a graphic that we didn't use in the book, but it was at the end, it was going to be for the skeptic who says, I work in a big company and the mothership rules my life and I can't do anything. And that there were 10 out of the 12 tools that could be done 100% within your own span of control. So it is really important to first start with, wow, I bet there is a lot on your meeting calendar that you can control. So when you are the inviter, you can be more mindful about who's in the meeting. You can go for those 25, 20, or 45-minute slots to create some of those stripes of white. When you're the recipient, it's wonderful to start developing gently the, to, the, the practice and habit of being able to opt out when you are not necessary in the meeting. And I, I want to tell you how hard this is, not just for people in the trenches, but there's a leader in the book called Devin, and he, he's a big shot in an accounting firm, super big shot guy, 
And he told me the story of four meetings that he sat in, in one day. It was a meeting sequence in upward levels of sign-off where the same pitch had done over and over and over as the different levels came into the room. He sat through the same pitch an hour at a time, four times. He said by the, by the fourth time, he was mouthing the words of the, of the pitch. He knew it so well. But he was only needed in the fourth meeting. And even this person with agency and power and seniority, it never occurred to him to just say, I think I'm going to opt out. And when you begin this, you just have to introduce the idea of sometimes I'm going to opt out. Now, it's very scary for most people. So let me walk you through all these uh, scaffolding pieces that are necessary to do it. First of all, you probably want to get a nobody which is find one pal to be your buddy that you can go to when you say, listen, Patrick, I need to opt out to, of a meeting. I have no idea how to do that. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to see as, be seen as a not team player. What about this language? Could I say it this way? Or maybe I could show that I'm not really adding or contributing or benefiting. And you work it out with your nobody. Have a person because it's not, it's not an easy thing to do, as you could see from Devin, the big shot who couldn't do it either. And then try to find reasons that it's smarter for you not to be in the meeting and if possible with a quantification element. Meaning if you're going to go to a leader and say, I'm noticing about 10 to 15% of my meetings are meetings where I'm really not contributing or benefiting. I think it could be doing better work for the company. Or I notice in 20% of my meetings, there is a peer of mine that is really an equal to me in level and expertise, and we're both sitting in the same meeting. So anytime that you can add a quantification element, you're going to get that ear of a senior person more easily. But it's baby steps. It's practicing and learning how to do it. It's so powerful. I'm just listening to you. I'm, I'm, I'm recalling, I don't know if you saw this article, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about people who took a second job because now that we work from home, they were actually working two full-time jobs and they realized they were in all these meetings where they didn't have to do anything. And in fact, if they didn't go to the meeting, they just had less work to do. So going to more meetings creates more work for you that doesn't necessarily drive anybody's agenda. And if you're careful about controlling meetings, you can actually have less sort of stuff to get through and more time to do the things you actually want to do. So I thought that was really interesting and it surprised me. Does that surprise you? It, it doesn't surprise me at all because there's so many valuable things that we would be doing if we weren't seeing in those meetings. I think that even saying that would be one of those communications to practice. Here is something I would really love to work in on for you rather than sitting in this meeting where I will just be listening to a report out of two-dimensional content that I could have gotten as an email. And so actually stating the project you'd like to work on. When you're on the other side of it, the inviter, I think a really powerful lens to consider is who should I invite and who should I inform? And one of the things we love playing with is where companies make this possible is if you publish open source notes of what was said during the meeting. People don't have that FOMO of, I didn't sit in the meeting, so I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> but that sense of, well, you have to invite the people that are really gonna take action in the meeting. But all those people that wish they could just know what had happened, all you have to do is create an open source notes platform and have somebody publish the notes. And now you've, you've done that. So there are these mindset shifts. And if you make these mindset shifts a little at a time, one person, then maybe one buddy, then maybe a team of five, and then you can start to spread it. FOMO. FOMO. I'd love to talk about how to organize good meetings because there are good things about meetings, mm. but most people, we're never taught, right? Nobody, there's no like 
class you take in university. It's like how to throw a good meeting, how long it should be, what you should do. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on on the right way to run a meeting. Sure. The prep is the most important. So, you know, you were surprised. You sounded a little surprised that I was listening to your stuff in prep, but I'm a big fan of prep. And I think that professionals prep. Professionals should also prep for meetings. And that's where we get back to that slice piece of how do you break down the white. So maybe I could go back to that. Mm-hmm. In a perfect 10-minute pause between meetings, I would like to see you do three things. I'd like to see you look back, look within, and look forward. The look back piece is, who did I just talk to? Do I need to enter a note so it doesn't pile up in my desk? What did I? What do I have to take away? Did I have an aha? Did I learn something? Did I make a mistake I could not do next time? That's the look back. Then look within is little break in the middle, three minutes maybe. I'm a human. Do I need a snack? Should I close my eyes for 30 seconds? Is it time for a bio break? And look forward starts to be what you're about to talk about is what's about to happen? Who are the people that I'm about to sit with what, which aspect of myself do I bring? The silly me, the executives, you know, I'm going to talk to a bunch of 60-year-old men, they want data me. There's a lot of different us's that we can bring, you know? And what do they need specifically? Em- empathizing with what this per- so important, especially for salespeople. What does this person really need? How can I serve them? All that stuff happens in that two to three minutes before the meeting. So when you've done that, when you've closed the door on distraction from the last meeting, taken care of your humanity and really prepped, you're already you're already teed up to have a much more effective meeting. Yeah, it's like when you go out for a run, right? And you stretch beforehand, you do some of that kind of dynamic motion, your chances of just performing better are higher. Your chances of hurting yourself are lower. And I don't think we think about that in the context of meetings, but it makes a ton of sense to me having shown up to so many meetings where I'm like, wait, why am I here? Like, who are these people? And you end up, it takes you half the meeting and then you end up sort of not really engaging in a meaningful way. What helps that prep is a good enough agenda. I say a good enough agenda because I think Mm -hmm. it's a waste of time to write out big agendas, but three or four simple things in a bullet point in the invite just to kind of give us a sense, not waste time on crafting it and just kind of give us a sense. And then in these meetings right now, I think if I could pick one thing that I would say, it is turn the cameras off. This is new data coming in. Adam Grant was just talking about this, but it's it's validating a sense that I've had through the entire pandemic, which is we are losing so much RAM in our minds being distracted by camera stuff, by uh, what is the picture behind you? I could see six people, but I can't see the header. And oh, it's a lot of books. He reads a lot of books. And oh, my hair is, I think my hair is out of place now. And it's just a constant stream of subtle distraction. So there's new data coming out that shows that the collective intelligence Intelligence is higher when the cameras are off. People can relax their eyes. They can get out of this crazy Zoom trance that they're in. I keep cameras on in our meetings for times when a 3D read of your face is relevant to business. And that means if I'm closing something on a deal, I want to see your face when I say the number, right? Or if I'm giving feedback to an employee that I know is important, but I can tell could be hurtful and I'm not really sure how sensitive they are. I want to see their face the minute that that hits. But I'm not going to keep the cameras on to make sure that you're not petting your dog while the meeting's going on. I'm going to trust real trust adults 
to do good work. And that means giving them permission to not have to stare at this ridiculous illuminated panel for 12 hours a day. And I'm pretty passionate about that. You just, if you get people, it's really funny, you say, turn the cameras off. <laughs> I've had meetings where they turned it off and then they turned it back on because they thought it was an exercise. I said, no, turn, really, turn them <laughs> like all the way for out, for the rest of the meeting off. I probably think that'd be my biggest contribution to the current conversation. Wow. This is, first of all, breaking news for me. I didn't know. I mean, it makes sense now that you say that. I... I have often complained, it's like, you know, before the pandemic, I was on the phone all day long, quite happily, and I didn't see people's faces and I managed to have a successful career and life. And by the way, like, you know, I talked to really close people in my life, friends, family, and others, and and I don't do it with the screen and these are the most important people. So why am I talking to, you know, people who are still important to me, but they're not, you know, it's like my mom and dad or something. It's very interesting. And I hadn't thought about that, but going forward, everybody who knows me, if you want to talk to me on Zoom, has to be because you really have a good reason to see my face. I'm, I'm making that change starting today. So thank you for that. And we use Zoom. We just use it with the cameras off. And if you, we won't do it now because we're limited time and so much content, but if we turn them off, there's this thing that happens in your brain. You just kind of, you relax into a different kind of listening. Mm -hmm. It's it's just you're tracking the subtleties in somebody's voice differently, and I, I get much more out of it. Now, Juliet, you're clearly a FOMO sapiens. You're also a human, and I imagine sometimes you have to multitask during a meeting. And in your book, you talk about this wonderful this wonderful little trick called phone narration that I thought was oh. really cool. So I'd love you to tell everybody about the phone narration because I was just like, woof, this is masterful. Thank you. I love that you pointed that out. That's one of my favorite children in there. The phenomenon of being with human beings who pick up a phone and then mysteriously disappear into it is just everywhere we look. And we have no idea whether they have picked up the phone to do something that has to do with what we're talking about with them or whether they've just disappeared. And this, the story in the book is about this client of ours where I was sitting with a couple clients. I was having a conversation. I said something about how many regional managers they had. And then a little bit later in the conversation, the guy that I was speaking to just picked up his phone and completely disappeared. And he was in there, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I'm, I'm still talking I didn't. I couldn't make eye contact anymore, so I'm awkward now. But I, I start thinking, wow, that's really rude. Did he just go into email? I don't really know what. And a, a, a painfully long period later, he lifted his head with a sweet service-based intention and said, 350 regional managers. Because the whole time, he was trying to find the stat that I had asked for, but I had no idea. So we do this in work, and we do this at home all the time when we're sitting with children and loved ones, we just pick up the device and we disappear. So the solution is called phone narration, and it is simply to narrate your digital-based activities when you're doing them, meaning, oh, I'm just going to look up that regional manager stat. I'm just going to check my flight to see if it's on time. Honey, at home, let's, let me just look up maps to get us to the lake, or let me make sure that grandma texted back so we can meet her. And when you narrate you are removing that separation anxiety that happens when we just have no idea where someone has gone. Fun parts about the tip. 
Number one, a lot of times you pick up the phone and you're trying to narrate, but you realize that you've picked up the phone for no reason at all. That's that's a good one. You say, oh, I just, because I'm in love with it and it's my mistress and that's why I picked it up. But then the fun thing is that all the people in your life will very quickly start to say, can you narrate, please? Because now they're wow. missing that clarity. Once they've experienced the fun of having a sense of where you are, they'll want it all the time. For narration, everybody. Try it out. All right. The, the book is called A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. If you want to read more about Juliet and also find out more about her work, you can go to julietfunt.com. Also, check her out on LinkedIn, where you can sign up for her LinkedIn newsletter. Juliet Funt, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMO Sapiens.com. FOMO.